The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to use First John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we have the privilege of studying your word, that as we look at your word, especially in this chapter in Daniel 11, and see the remarkable prophecy, the remarkable detail in this prophecy that you gave to Daniel in approximately 537 A.D., B.C., and that it was uh, fulfilled in precision over 300 years later, we are impressed with the fact that you are the God who controls history, who brings things about according to your will, and the God who is going to bring uh, stability out of chaos. Father, even as we in this nation face this war on terrorism and the instability that we see all around us, instability in the financial markets, instability in international affairs, problems in the Middle East, as well as the threat of terrorism at home, we know that you are still in control. So, Father, as we study this passage, we pray that you would help us to uh, see the application of it in terms of our own life and our own understanding of your control, that we might relax and, and have a witness in our own spiritual life of, of being able to relax and rest in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue our study in Daniel chapter 11. And I know that for some people, this is one of those sections that is going to uh, drive you right up the roof because... When we get into this kind of uh, historical detail in the Old Testament, some folks just don't have a tremendous appreciation for it. And it's not often that you get into a text like this that, that from our perspective, is nothing more than history. But from the perspective of Daniel, it is predictive prophecy. Daniel writes about 537 B.C., and it's fulfilled. And this fulfillment takes place between approximately 220 B.C. 
and 140 B.C. So 220, for those of you who haven't done the math, 220 from 530 is uh, 310. So that's uh, he's telling this in detail. So keep that in mind. Don't lose the forest for the trees as we go through the detail here because we have to go back to understanding why Daniel was written. And Daniel is part of wisdom literature, as I said at the beginning. And, and the uh, Jews divided the Old Testament up into three sections. There was the Torah, which was the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, which was designed to give them the law and specific mandates related to uh, both salvation and the ceremonial law, the ritual of the Old Testament, the priesthood, as well as civil law. Then you have the uh, prophets, the former prophets, which would include Joshua, Judges, First uh, Samuel, First Kings, and the latter prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and the Twelve, or what we call the minor prophets. But Daniel wasn't listed with the minor prophets. Daniel was listed among the what was called the Ketuvim, the writings. And the primary thrust of the writings was wisdom. It has to do with application. And so when we get to a passage like this, what you ought to be thinking at times is not how boring this is to run through this uh, regimen of the Seleucid and Ptolemaic dynasties and their respective kingdoms, but the fact that God is giving this information to the Jews 300 years in advance in order to prepare them for the how to handle a situation when a man, a ruler, is going to come on the scene that is that God sovereignly chooses to be the representative of all rulers. I want you to think about this. Of all rulers in history, from Adolf Hitler to the Ayatollah Khomeini, Saddam Hussein, um, Joseph Stalin, think about the heinous leader that you love to hate the most. And God did not choose anyone like that to be the representative, the type of the Antichrist. God chose Antiochus Epiphanes. And all of this prophecy leads up to Antiochus Epiphanes, who comes on the scene in about verse 36. And so God is preparing the Jews to recognize that there's going to be a tremendous amount of political chaos and instability. There will be a tremendous amount of warfare going back and forth through the land and a tremendous amount of economic instability all leading up to this one individual coming on the scene. Now, we could make application to that. We don't know how close we are to the tribulation, but it's very likely that since this is a type of the Antichrist, that it's very likely that in the years preceding the rapture, but definitely preceding the rise of the Antichrist, this could be just that period between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation, there will be a time of tremendous instability and a time of tremendous fear. I know a case can be made that it would just be the time between the rapture and the tribulation because once all believers are uh, removed from the earth in the exit resurrection of the rapture, there's going to be a tremendous amount of chaos on the earth as a consequence of that. But that chaos may precede the rapture to some degree. We just don't know prophecy isn't that specific, and so we have to be careful of those who try to uh, make it that way. 
So the application from Daniel 11 is that God's still in control no matter how unstable things may be, no matter how frightening things may appear, no matter how much suffering might come on the scene, both personally and nationally, God is still in control and God is working out his plans and purposes. Now, just to pick up the context a little bit before we ended last time, I I went home last week and I thought, so much strange material, so much historical information that's foreign to everybody that I tried to think of some ways to, to pull it together and at least give a visual so that we could understand it a little better and so that you could sit there not so glassy-eyed perhaps and um, uh, try to put things together a little more. Let's go back and look at about verse Verse 9, just to pick up the context. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. And the king of the north here refers to the Syria, the, the area of Syria, what we would call Syria. That was the Seleucid Empire. After the death of Alexander the Great, the, his great Greek empire, which you see on the map, this great Greek empire was divided up, and let me skip, get back here, um, and we see that this area in light blue here, that's the Seleucid Empire, and the Seleucid Empire, the, the, actually is the, the Greek Empire was divided among four generals, uh, Cassandra, Lysimachus, and they are never mentioned in Scripture because their empires don't touch on biblical events and biblical history. And then there is there was Ptolemy who went to Egypt and took over that part of the empire, and then Seleucus I who had control of what would appear to be the lion's share, at least territorially, the area from... Uh, from see this area up here where we have Armenia mentioned, Ar- Armenia listed all the way down through the uh, these the Zagros Mountains here, the, all of this area. This is modern Iraq here, over here in this area labeled Persia. That's modern uh, Iran over here towards Parthia. This moves into the area of modern uh, Afghan- Afghanistan, all the way down to the Indian border. All of this was under the control of. Uh, the, Selu- the, the Seleucids, beginning with Seleucus I, and his great competitor was Ptolemy I down in Egypt. And at the beginning of this period, uh, the Ptolemies were clearly in ascendancy, uh, unlike this map, where th- this map shows a... Um, that there wasn't much of a difference. All this territory initially, that's all the way up to about here, from ISIS and just draw a line straight from here down to the tip of uh, Arabia here. This whole area that would include modern Lebanon and Jordan and much of Syria and Palestine was all part of the Egyptian uh, sector. So that was all part of Ptolemy's empire to begin with, and that was really the area that was fought over between these two uh, empires. And what verse 9 tells us, the king of the north... Uh, shall come down to the king of the south and should then return to his own land. However, his sons shall stir up strife. Now, the problem that you get into in trying to read through the text is that there's a tremendous number of third-person singular uh, pronouns. He, he, his, his, and it's very difficult to keep track of who the reference is. So I tried to put some things together. Incidentally, here's a picture of... Uh, 
Ptolemy I on the left bringing an offering to the gods. And uh, I just thought that would give you a little historical insight there into the times. Uh, in Daniel 11, verse 9 and 10, we have a reference to Antiochus III in the north. That's the his. However, his sons, the king of the north that comes south is Antiochus III. And his, uh, excuse me, see, I'm getting confused. This is Seleucus the uh, second, And his sons... And he had two sons, Seleucus III and Antiochus III. And this pretty much will characterize the next few years in their their empire. So Seleucus II uh, wins control of Syria from uh, Ptolemy III. And um, after an initial period I went over last time where Ptolemy III was a tremendous conqueror. In fact, he defeated Seleucus to begin with and conquered almost all of his empire and sacked it all the way to India. But then he went home, and several years later, Seleucus returned and headed south and won some territory. Now, verse 10, we pick up in his, that is Seleucus II, his sons, and he had two sons that will reign, Seleucus III and Antiochus III. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. So 300 years ahead of time, Daniel says, there's going to be a ruler, two rulers, and they're both going to mount major invasions down through Palestine to attack the king of the south. And one of them, he says in the second part of the verse, one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. And the his there at the end is the king of the south, that is Ptolemy III. And this describes the beginning of what's called the Fourth Syrian War. They had had three Syrian wars before the first Syrian war was uh, involved. Uh, Ptolemy II against Antiochus I and second. Um, Ptolemy II fought both of them in the first and second Syrian wars. The third Syrian war was against uh, between Ptolemy III and Antiochus II. So this is the fourth Syrian war. Now, here's a chart. We'll see this two or three more times. I wanted you to take a look at this. This is um, the list on the left are the, and the, Seleuc- the Seleucids. Starting with Seleucus I, Nicator, the victor, three, who reigned from 312 to 281 B.C. He was succeeded by his son, Antiochus, or excuse me, his son, uh, Antiochus I, Soter, meaning Savior. Uh, notice the, the way they're adopting terms of divinity uh, for, their, uh, for their names. Uh, Antiochus I Soter reigns from 280 to 261 B.C. He is succeeded by his son, Antiochus II, called Theos, or God, from 261 to 246 B.C. He's followed by Seleucus II, called Callinicus, and uh, who is also his son. He reigns from 312 to 281 B.C., and he's the one who finally wrests control of Syria after Ptolemy. That's where we are in this passage. So... In verse 10, we're looking at Seleucus II, and then he has two sons who are Seleucus III Soter from 225 to 223. He only has three years in power before he's killed in battle. 
and then Antiochus III, who called himself the Great. He had pretensions to greatness. He was going to be the next Alexander, and he was always involved in some kind of a military expansion program in order to uh, uh, increase their territory. So Antiochus III uh, is the one who comes along to mobilize various forces, and this is the one that's mentioned in Verse 11, the one that will keep on coming, one of them, that's the second one, Antiochus III, will keep on coming and overcome and pass through that he may wage war up to the fortress. Now, he's fighting Ptolemy IV. On the other side, you see, uh, we have Ptolemy IV Philopater, and that means the lover of his father, and he reigned from 221 to 203. And Ptolemy IV was the Hugh Hefner of the ancient world. He was, uh, every time I read something about him, they used words like dilettante, playboy, womanizer, uh, great uh, debauchery. He would rather sit at home and chase all of his wives than do anything else. And as Antiochus III was invading from the north to seize the area of Palestine, he was finally forced to uh, get off his get out of his bed, I guess, and to uh, gather an army together and go into battle. So he did, and he met Ptolemy IV at a place called Raphia. And Raphia is just uh, south of, um, of Gaza. Ptolemy was coming south with an army of 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. That's your heavy cavalry. And, and uh, Ptolemy... Uh, well, excuse me, that was Ptolemy's army, 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. Antiochus had 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants. So he has a great multitude. Verse 13 says, The king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years he will press on with a great army and much equipment. So he's headed down with this, Antiochus is headed down with this army of about uh, 68,000 and 102 elephants, and yet Antiochus is going to be defeated by Ptolemy IV at, at Raphia. So he goes back home and he nurses his wounds, and for the next... Uh, Eight years, he just kind of rests as far as Ptolemy's concerned. And in that meantime, he's off conducting military campaigns into the Caspian Sea area and out along the Indus River. But he never takes his, his dreams away from conquering Palestine. And in 203 B.C., as you can see by this chart, Ptolemy IV is going to die, and at that time Antiochus puts his army together, and he's going to go pass, go down, and um, go after uh, Egypt again. So in verse, here's a map here. This is where Raphia is located, right here along the coast. Here's Gaza. You got to turn side. We're looking. We're in looking at Israel from the east, looking west towards the Mediterranean. Here's the um, here's the Dead Sea, here's Jerusalem, and here's Raphia right along the coast, the scene of that famous battle where uh, Ptolemy IV defeated Antiochus III. But Antiochus is going to come back, and this time he's going to ally himself with um, Philip V of Macedon. 
And in verse 14 we read, now in those times, that means at approximately the same time, but now we know from history that it was about ten years later, in those times uh, many will rise up against the king of the south, who is Ptolemy the fourth, and the many would include some Jews, but it would also include the Greeks. And um, Antiochus has allied himself with Philip V of Macedon, who seizes several of the Aegean islands, Cyprus and, and Crete, and he's on his way to, to Egypt. And then Daniel is warned that there will be there will be violent ones among your people who will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. See, they're going to try to make prophecy happen. This is one of the dangerous things that you see sometimes with evangelicals even today. We know prophecy. We know God has a plan for Israel. And so there are evangelicals who are trying to manipulate things. They there are evangelicals who've been involved in. Of course, uh, trying to raise a red heifer to get over to Israel. There was a Christian down in uh, somewhere in the South, Alabama or Mississippi, was uh, very instrumental in that. There have been many evangelicals who have given uh, thousands, if not millions, of dollars to the uh, uh, Temple Mount faithful over in Israel to help them rebuild all the uh, furniture for the future uh, temple that they want to build up on the Holy Mountain. And th- I think this is an example. I think it's something we need to be careful of. That this is an example of uh, people who are trying to manipulate prophecy, thinking that somehow we can speed things up and, and uh, hurry up the rapture if we uh, get involved in these kinds of things. And there's a warning here in the ancient world that, to Daniel that that there would be those among his people who would lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. They want to hurry things along. They know there's going to be this world ruler come along, and they're going to try to uh, hurry things along and get rid of the the, the uh, overlordship of the Egyptians and and help in the ascendancy of the Seleucids. So they're going to uh, try to force the issue, but they will fall down. Daniel warns in. In verse 14, they're going to fail because God is the one who controls history. Now, what happened is that in uh, in uh, 203, when Ptolemy the fourth died, his son Ptolemy the fifth, also called Epiphanes, just like the famous Antiochus Epiphanes, it means the uh, appearance of God. Uh, Ptolemy the fifth Epiphanes. Uh, comes to the throne at the tender age of seven. So Antiochus III sees his opportunity, and he invades south and captures Gaza. So while he's headed south to capture Gaza, the Jews align themselves with him, and Egypt sent north their general Scopas, who was their best general, and he is defeated in 198 at a place called Panias, which is just north of Galilee. He's defeated at Panias, and then, in a funny turn, his history has a funny turn, after the, the Antiochus in the north defeats Ptolemy, he enters into an alliance with him because he sees a new power rising off in the west, and that's Rome. And so he marries his daughter. Antiochus III has a beautiful daughter by the name of Cleopatra. This is not the Cleopatra that you know of. This is Cleopatra I, the one that you're familiar with, who had a dalliance with Caesar and Mark Antony, is Cleopatra VII. 
but apparently there were certain genetic trends to their sin nature because, as you're going to see, this gets what we're going to study in the history of the Ptolemies here is going to make you know the young and the restless and you know all my children pale in comparison. I mean, you know, modern Hollywood writers ought to pay attention to some of this stuff. It's just absolutely bizarre. So Antiochus the third decides that he can marry off his daughter. See, in the, back in those days, you, you didn't have diplomats who would go sit down at a peace table and sign a peace treaty. They would seal, if they had any kind of peace agreement, they would seal it by arranging a marriage between their daughter and somebody in the royal house of the opposing side. That's why they always wanted to have lots of daughters, is so that they could use them as pawns in their schemes. And he had a he had another agenda, and that was, well, if I put my daughter down there as Ptolemy's wife, then she's going to give me all kinds of secret information, and she's going to be, uh, you know, a pawn for me, and I'm going to be able to use her. But Cleopatra I was a loyal wife to Ptolemy V, and she turned on her father, which is exactly what the Scriptures predict. Uh, verse 15, then the king of the north, Antiochus III, will come and cast up a siege mound. This is when he came down and fought at Panias, and then he went and, and uh, uh, set up a siege against Sidon. Uh, this, this, notice verse 15 specifically tells the details of what happened 300 years later. Antiochus III will come, cast up a siege mound, and capture a well-fortified city, and that was Sidon. And the forces of the south, that is Egypt under Scopus, will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops. The Egyptians sent three more of their top generals up to try to defeat uh, Antiochus III, and they all failed. There will be no strength to make a stand. So Ptolemy V basically loses his uh, control of Palestine at the Battle of Panias. But he, verse 16, he is Antiochus III, who comes against him, that is Ptolemy V, Antiochus III is the aggressor. He will do as he pleases. He's got control of Palestine. He's going to go back and forth, do as he pleases. No one will be able to to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hands. So there's a warning to Jews. He's going to come in with his army, and he's just going to be marching back and forth, and your homes are going to burn, and your women are going to be in danger, and your economy is going to collapse, and you're not you're you're, you're going to plant. Uh, crops in the ground, and as soon as they're ready for harvest, the uh, Syrian troops are going to come in and confiscate it all. So you need to be prepared. But what's, what's he really saying? God's in control. God knows exactly what's going to happen. Jesus Christ controls history. Then verse 17, And he, Antiochus III, will set his face to come with power, the power of his whole kingdom. So he went home after this peace, and, and he's going to come down with his whole kingdom again, bringing with him a proposal of peace which he will put into effect. After the battle of Panias, after he's had his way with Palestine, then he's going to put forth his peace proposal with, that I mentioned already with uh, uh, Ptolemy V, which is going to be sealed by uh, his daughter. The text says he will also give him the daughter of women, that is Cleopatra I, to ruin it. And that is to ruin the, the, um, uh, his situation. His design is that his daughter will ruin, uh, Ptolemy. But in contrast, the last sentence states, she will not take a stand for him, that is for Antiochus III, 
or be on his side. Now, Antiochus III finally dies in 187 B.C., and he is going to be succeeded by his son. Now, he had a daughter, Cleopatra I. Try to keep the scorecard here. He's got a daughter, Cleopatra I, who's married to Ptolemy V. He's got another son, the eldest son, Seleucus IV, who is called Philopater. And then he has another son who is going to be the infamous Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So Cleopatra I is the sister of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, there are some other interesting things that are going on at this time, one of which is that Rome is rising in the west. And in, um, let me see, in verse 18... We see that Antiochus, before he dies, Antiochus has one last major campaign, military campaign. In verse 18 we read, Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. Now the Hebrew word for coastlands here is a word that usually refers to Greece, refers to the area around the Aegean Sea. He will turn his face to the coastlands, and he will capture many. He's going to have military success. So Antiochus III is going to head west. He's going to capture uh, Cyprus, Crete, the various islands in the Aegean and Mediterranean. He's going to take control of the uh, western part of what we call Turkey, and then he's going to cross over to conquer Greece. Remember, he wants to be another Alexander the Great. Now, at this point... He's got control over Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, all the way down to the south uh, east to India. He is, has conquered a tremendous amount of territory, but once he crosses over the Bosporus in another invasion of the east into the west, God's going to put a stop to it. Remember, God is going to keep uh, the application of prophecy. Japheth is going to was given the the inheritance in Western Europe, the descendants of Japheth, who was one of Noah's sons, not the Hamitic or Shemitic people. So God is always going to prevent any Asiatic invasion of Western Europe. So what happens here is he he goes over to Greece and uh, and he sets up he he sees Rome on the ascendancy, and now pause a minute. We're going to see what else is going on in the world. Rome has been fighting two wars with the Carthaginians down in North Africa. They're made famous because Hannibal was their famous general. Hannibal comes up through Spain, crosses the Alps on his elephants, and invades the Italian peninsula from the north. Well, after the Second Punic War, the, in the Second Punic War, the Romans realized that they had to go on the offense because you can't win a war by operating on the defense. So they mounted a campaign, and their very famous commander, General Scipio, called Africanus because of his victory over the Carthaginians, goes down to Carthage, defeats Hannibal, and Hannibal uh, escapes. And now Hannibal is in exile. Well, during this time, it looked like Hannibal was going to defeat the Romans, so Antiochus III, very foolishly, had entered into an agreement or treaty with Hannibal, thinking that they're going to get Rome from the south, and he would get Rome from the east, and he not only would conquer Greece, but he would take over the area which we call the Balkans and Italy, and he would be greater than Alexander the Great. But instead, the Romans defeated Hannibal, and he had entered into this agreement with Hannibal. Hannibal goes into exile, heads east, and joins up with Antiochus III. 
at a place already made famous by Xerxes called Thermopylae Pass. So they end up at Thermopylae, and the Romans come after them with Scipio Africanus' younger brother, who becomes known as Scipio Asiaticus, because he's going to give them the victory in the east in Asia. And Scipio is going to uh, defeat Antiochus III's navy in the Aegean, and then he's going to retreat and be, have his army destroyed at the Battle of Magnesia in 190 B.C. And this is a very famous battle because the consequences of it were such that they were felt down through the next uh, 50 or 60 years, and it sets the stage for the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes. Because the economic consequences of this battle are much like the end of World War I. Now, I'm hoping some of you have a framework for history. You know, this last week was July the 4th, and there were several people on news shows and talk shows who would go out onto the street in New York and Los Angeles and ask people questions like, this is Independence Day. What are we celebrating our independence from? And nobody knew. I mean, it was just amazing, the answers. Well, wasn't there some war? Oh, yeah, it was World War One. Well, who are we celebrating our independence from? Well, somebody said, well, was it Germany? No. Was it France? Yeah, maybe it was France. That, that scares me because one of these days, as a pastor, I'm not going to be able to teach like I teach now because these common people who have no, who are the products of our wonderful public education system are going to be coming into the pews and they're not going to know Anything, you know, you're going to have to sit down and have, we're going to have to start having a basic Sunday school class just to teach them, um, the difference between BC and AD. And that may take several months to, to do that. But anyway, what happens, what happened at the end of World War I was the Western Allies imposed a harsh treaty called the Treaty of Versailles on Germany. And they, Germany had to pay these enormous reparations. They couldn't have an army. They couldn't. Uh, uh, they couldn't have certain weapons, uh, and they had to pay just tremendous amounts of money to the Allies. And it was impossible. You've got a defeated nation who's wiped out, who's got no resources, has to rebuild all their industry, rebuild everything, and yet you're putting this tremendous burden on them to pay this these war reparations. And the result was it set the stage for future wars. Well, the same thing happened in the ancient world, and it just shows that the diplomats at Versailles were ignorant of their ancient history. And at the Peace of Apamea, the Romans imposed a tremendous burden on the Seleucids. And there were six, uh, six provisions in the Peace of Apamea. First of all, Antiochus III had to surrender all territories in Asia Minor west of the Taurus River. That's almost all of Turkey, modern Turkey. These were some of his wealthiest territories, and it cut him off from seaports, which means trade, cut him off from manpower, which means labor, and cut him off from his wealthiest areas where he had his solid tax base. So they're going to impose these huge financial reparations, and then they're going to steal his tax base from him. Second, he had to surrender all of his elephants, which, as we've already seen, was a heavy cavalry of the ancient world. Third, he had to surrender all the ships of his fleet, so he has to give up his armored cav, and he has to give up his his, uh, navy. And that cut out his communication, his supply lines, and his maritime trade. Uh, 
Fourth, he had to agree that he would recruit no troops from Asia Minor, from the Aegean, or from Greece. And those were some of his best soldiers. So he was going to be limited in terms of the kind of military he could put together. Fifth, this was the thing that set the stage for the future problems with Antiochus Epiphanes, is that Antiochus III had to pay the Romans 15,000 talents every year. That's the equivalent of about 3 to $4 billion today. That's an awesome amount of money, and once he's lost his tax base, Antiochus III had to get it somewhere else. And then sixth, in order to guarantee that he would uh, make these reparations, the Romans insisted that um, uh, that Antiochus III uh, give a family member as a hostage. And so he sent his younger son, Antiochus IV, as a hostage to Rome. Now, that has interesting ramifications because he's going to pick up Roman culture. And remember, in the future, the Antichrist is comes out of Rome. So Antiochus III picks up Roman culture, Romans' ideals. He always wanted to emulate the Romans. And he is going to... Uh, initiate quite a bit of intrigue in order to finally uh, gain the throne. Now, this is the period of history that covers what's going on in Palestine from about 200 B.C. down to the Maccabean Wars and the freedom of the Jewish state. Now, we come to verse 19. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land. This is still talking about Antiochus III. So from from Daniel 11, uh, 10 where it talks about him as one of the sons, all the way down to, to verse uh, 19, the subject is Antiochus III. He's going to turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land. He's going to have to look somewhere else to get this money, and so he comes back into his own country, and he starts robbing the temples. In the ancient world, the temples served as as uh, the banks. That's where people figured there was some safety because nobody would rob a temple because they would risk offending the gods. So the, the temple served as the bank. So what Antiochus III would do is he would go into a town and he would find the local temple and raid its treasury, and that's how he was going to get his money to make the reparations. Well, uh, there are different stories as to how he died. One is that he just died, and another is that he was assassinated by a priest at one of these temples. Nevertheless, he died, and he is succeeded by his younger son, who is uh, Seleucus the Fourth. So now here we are with our. Uh, wait a minute. Here we are, Seleucus the Third, Antiochus the Third, the Great, is succeeded by his son. Seleucus IV, called Philopator, meaning lover of his father. He's going to reign from 187 to 175, which isn't very long. And rumor is that he was assassinated also because of the various intrigues initiated by his brother, Antiochus IV. Now, remember, they have a sister, Cleopatra I, who's married over here to uh, Ptolemy V. And they're going to have a daughter named... um, Cleopatra II, who's going to marry her brother, Ptolemy VI. See, it gets really interesting here. They're into all, I mean, this family, you know, we always laugh about folks who live in a certain part of town or a certain state that's a little backwards, a little backward, and their family tree doesn't fork. This family tree didn't fork. 
they're, they're, the inbreeding is just is is just phenomenal by by our standards. So Ptolemy the fifth has a daughter Cleopatra the second who marries her brother Ptolemy the sixth, and then it's really going to get interesting because Ptolemy the sixth is pretty young when he takes the throne, and he's going to be defeated in battle by Antiochus the fourth. Well, while he's off in Israel. In Palestine, uh, while uh, Ptolemy V is off in Palestine doing battle with Antiochus IV, the folks who are living in Alexandria decide to have a revolt, and they're going to put the younger brother, Ptolemy VIII. Notice it skips from Ptolemy VI to Ptolemy VIII. You say, well, where's Ptolemy VII? Well, seven is the son of six, but he's a baby. So it goes from six to eight. Now you're really confused, but, but he's going to come in the picture in a minute. So six... Uh, six, it comes to the throne, and he is he is defeated by Antiochus the fourth. So Alexand- the Alexandrianites revolt and put Ptolemy the eighth, the sixth younger brother, on the throne. Well, Ptolemy the sixth comes back and he makes up with Ptolemy the eighth, and so Ptolemy the sixth married to his si- sister Cleopatra the second, and their and his brother and their brother younger brother Ptolemy VIII, all get together and they rule Egypt. And they're in and out. I mean, when you look at the dates on Ptolemy VIII, he's he's reigning for 20 years and then he's gone for a couple of years and then he's back for a couple of years and, and everything gets confused. And finally in about, I've got the date backwards there, it's 145 B.C., Ptolemy VI dies. When Ptolemy VI dies, Ptolemy VIII comes back. He's going to be the ruler, so he's going to marry his brother's widow, who is also his sister, and so he's going to marry her, and so he marries Cleopatra II, but he's not happy because Ptolemy VI and Cleo II had a gorgeous daughter, and he lusts after the daughter, so while he's married to the mother, he marries a stepdaughter. These are just wonderful people. And But, you know, finally Cleopatra II said enough of all of this, and she raises a little army, so Ptolemy VIII had to go into exile into Cyprus. Well, through his machinations, his people going uh, finally forced Cleopatra out, and she had to go to the Seleucids for aid, because remember, her, uh, her uncle is Antiochus Epiphanes. So uh, finally, Ptolemy VIII comes back on the throne, but that gets us out of the time frame we're looking at. But that just gives you an idea of how much fun it was to live in the ancient. You thought things were fun now. See, some, some rulers and presidents, you know, just always have. Well, we won't go there. Okay, where were we? We're down to um, Daniel 11, verse 20. Then in his place one will arise, this is a Seleucus III, who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom, yet, or excuse me, uh, Seleucus IV. Yet within a few days he, that is Seleucus IV, will be shattered. He doesn't last long on the throne, about nine years, and then he's, he dies, though neither in anger nor in battle. He is going to be succeeded by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And we read in verse 22, And the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered and also the Prince of the Covenant. Now, this verse, the term Prince of the Covenant, refers to what is going on uh, in Israel. The overflowing forces uh, 
refers to the forces coming up from the south. They're flooded away before him. That's Antiochus the fourth. They're shattered. And also the prince of the covenant. The prince of the covenant refers to uh, Jason, who is the was the high priest of, um, uh, of of Israel after the Seleucids took over. In order to come up with the money to pay make the reparations for the peace of Apamea, Antiochus had appointed Jason as the high priest. He had no he had no uh, high, he was not a descendant of Aaron, but he's appointed as a high priest. And um, in 171. Uh, Antiochus decided that Jason wasn't delivering enough cash to him, and so to straighten things out, he fires Jason and appoints uh, Menelaus as, as the high priest. Now, that's in the year 171, and that's important because that begins the seven years of the abomination re- described back in Daniel 8.14, which we covered at that time. And this gets us into the whole problem of uh, Antiochus's interaction and intervention into the temple worship and the priesthood in Israel. In verse 23, we read, And after this, an alliance is made with him. He, Antiochus IV, will practice deception. So he's constantly maneuvering, manipulating, deceiving uh, Ptolemy V, or excuse me, Ptolemy VI, and he will. He goes back and forth. He invades. He goes back to Syria. Then he invades again. Uh, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. So he's able to gain power because there's such instability in Egypt. He's able to gain power over the Ptolemies with a much smaller army. Now, here is a coin from the ancient world, a picture of a coin with the profile of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, Antiochus is, a, in his character and in his dealings, he is a type of the future Antichrist. So I want you to notice some things that are said. Notice how specific the scriptures are. Look at verse 24. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest part of the realm. So it's a time of peace. There's no wars going on. But he goes to the richest part of, of, of the realm because he's trying to raise the money to pay off the Romans after the peace of Apamea. He will accomplish what his fathers never did. He's going to raise the money. He's going to defeat Egypt, which his fathers never did, nor his ancestors, and he will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. Now, who are the them? The them are the people who live in in Syria, the people who live in the Seleucid Empire. These are the peasants. These are the everyday citizenry in all of the towns. What's he doing? He's going to go to war and defeat Ptolemy the sixth in Egypt. He's then going to plunder him. He's going to take all this money from him, take all this money from the Jews. And what's he going to be? Just like a good politician, he's going to come back and redistribute the wealth. And this is what makes him popular with people is because he's going to give them money. You see, whenever the government is giving people money for free, they are imitating the future Antichrist. This is one reason why Christians tend to be against socialism, against any kind of federal reparation, any kind of federal payments to people, federal welfare system, because it's a, any kind of redistribution of wealth scheme is because of passages like this in the Old Testament that talk about that as the type of activity that will characterize the Antichrist. See, Antiochus is not the kind of guy that you would go up to and think of as an evil person. He was very charismatic. He was. Uh, he had a lot of fun. People tell stories about the fact that that um, 
at night after Antiochus would go into his palace or his, or his fortress and after his uh, security detail would go to sleep, Antiochus would go dress up like a peasant, crawl out the window, and go around town and pull practical jokes on people. He was a great guy. He was a lot of fun. People, people loved him. And uh, he gave everybody money, and he would win any popularity contest hands down. And that's exactly what it's going to be like with the rise of the Antichrist. People are not going, if you and I could see the Antichrist today, I would bet 90% of Christian, evangelical Christians in America would vote for him. That's the kind of guy he's going to be, and of course that's how stupid most evangelical Christians are. But they, this guy is going to have that kind of personality. He's going to promise something to everybody, and he's going to come through with to some of it to some degree. But he is going to win their loyalty uh, by paying for him. But eventually it comes back to haunt him. Verse 25, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south, that is Ptolemy VI, with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Ptolemy the sixth is going to uh, not be successful because of the internal problems and the machinations going on between his brother Ptolemy the eighth and other forces inside the empire. Verse 26, those who eat his choice food will destroy him. And, of course, choice food refers to that royal. It's the same term used back in Daniel 1, which spoke of that choice food that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to eat. It is the the special food that has been prepared by the royal chefs. So those who eat his choice food will destroy him. His army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. In other words, those in his own household will destroy him, and that's exactly what happened, and he was he was eventually killed. Now, verse 27, as for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil. They will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. See, God is in control of history, despite all the things that are going on, despite all the machinations of, of mankind and politicians, despite all the conspiracies and conspiracy theorists and all of the uh, scare alarms that we might get. We can't ever forget that Jesus Christ controls history. And no matter how much it may look as though uh, a terrorist attack could come and destroy this nation or wipe out Western Europe or wipe out Israel, we know that God is in control, so we can relax, and God is going to work out his details, and that which has been decreed from eternity past will uh, transpire. So both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil. They will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed. And this verse just describes Antiochus, the force dealings with Ptolemy. It also foreshadows the deception that will be on the part of the Antichrist during the tribulation. In verse 28, that he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. Now, one of the things that happens in between verse 27 and verse 28 is that Antiochus IV is going to invade uh, Egypt one more time. And in one... and when he does that, the, the Romans are going to come in in order to, uh, in order to protect Egypt. This is, so we get a summary at verse 28. 
The summary at the end, he, his, his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. That's against the Jews. And he will take action and then return to his own land. So you see the beginning of his anti-Semitism. And this is just going to explode in the next few verses. Verse 29, at the appointed time he will return and come into the south. But this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. Before he was victorious, now he will lose. When he comes to Egypt, what, hap- what he faces is the ships of Katim, verse 30. For ships of Katim, and this is an idiom that describes ships from beyond Cyprus and Crete. This would refer to the Romans. The Roman navy comes in to back up Ptolemy the Sixth, And unfortunately for Antiochus IV, right in the middle of his second campaign into Egypt, the uh, Third Macedonian War ended between the Romans and the, and the Macedonians, and so the Romans send their navy down to uh, help Egypt and to prevent uh, losing Egypt to uh, the control of the Seleucids. And they sent their, their envoy, a man by the name of Linus, in order to be the negotiator. But the Romans had a sound way of negotiating policy. They didn't sit down and do give and take. When Antiochus showed up, um, and incidentally, he had known Lucius from childhood because, remember, Antiochus was a hostage in Rome when he was young. Well, he goes way back with Lucius Linus, and they go back to their childhood when they were friends. And so he thought he had, you know, we're going to work the good old boy system here, and we're going to be able to come out with a, with a good deal. But when Lucius came up and Antiochus offered his hand in friendship, it was refused uh, Lucius looked at him, took this rolled-up scroll from the Roman Senate out of his toga, put it in Antiochus's hand, and as Antiochus unrolled the scroll, it was a demand from the Romans to get out of Egypt immediately. It was not his land, it was their land, and he had to leave instantly. Well, Antiochus was just taken aback. He didn't know how to react, so he thought, well... Let me give give me a little time, Lucius, to think this over. Maybe we can have dinner, go out, party a little bit, get some women. We'll uh, bring my generals in. We'll talk about this. And Lucius just reached down with his sword, and he drew a circle around Antiochus and said, uh, you have to give me an answer before you get out of that circle. So, see, that's how you do diplomacy. You just tell people that, that this is the way it's going to be. And uh, sometimes I think that... that uh, you know, in response, we ought to just say the next terrorist attack, there's going to be a uh, nuclear tip missile hit Mecca. End of story. You know, we have to learn to play hardball and protect American people and not just, you know, sit back and play games of compromise. Anyway, so Antiochus is depressed now because of his defeat, so he heads back through Israel, through Palestine, and... He's going to take it out on the Jews. This is where his anti-Semitism just explodes. And we read in verse 31, Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Now remember, this is written to Jews, and so he is warning the Jews that when, when this happens, you better be prepared because all hell is going to break loose in Palestine. And this is exactly what Antiochus did. First of all, he suspended all temple ritual. Nobody could go into the temple. He he called a halt to all sacrifices. And remember, if you're a Jew, the only way to have forgiveness 
was to offer a, a sin offering, so no more sin offering. So what are you going to do? Secondly, he tried to destroy every copy of the sacred scriptures which he could find. So he was burning every Bible, much like Hitler did. Third, anyone who was found reading the scriptures would be punished uh, by death. No special days were to be observed, uh, including the Sabbath. Fourth, all strict Jewish food laws were to be uh, abolished, and they were to no longer could they observe their, uh, the, the Jewish food laws. Fifth, any woman who was caught circumcising uh, a son or having uh, uh, would be killed. The woman caught circumcising would be killed, and if a son was found to have been circumcised, he would be killed, and so would the mother. There would be no more circumcision of Jewish males. And if all that wasn't enough to uh, anger the Jewish population, he went into the altar to desecrate it, sacrificed a pig to Zeus on the altar, and then, which was an unclean animal, it was a, one of the worst things you could possibly do in violation of the Mosaic law. And then he set up an idol to Zeus in the in the temple. Uh, after that time, the the uh, uh, Jews were to worship Baal Shemayam, which was means the Lord of Heaven. But the Jews coined another word that sounded like that, a little pun called Shikah Shomim which uh, Antiochus didn't catch on, but what it meant was the abomination of desolation, and that is what's referred to here. And this is where the term comes from. This is, this is like what the Antichrist is going to do halfway through uh, the uh, tribulation. Now, as a result of this, Antiochus, who called himself Epiphanes, the manifestation of God, uh, the Jews had another little pun they used. They called him Antiochus Epimenes. And Epimenes means the idiot, the brain-damaged one. So uh, that's how the Jews got back at him. Verse 32, And by smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. So he is going to use all of his arts at, at rhetoric and to turn people against God and to turn people against the Jews. But the people who know their God will display strength, and take action. And this is an indication of what will take place uh, after Antiochus IV with the rise of the uh, Maccabean revolt. So we'll have to stop here because we're about out of time. And next time we'll look at the next two or three verses dealing with the Maccabean revolt and the intertestamental period up to the time of the Gospels. And then we will jump as there's another gap between verse 35 and 36 as there have been several gaps that we studied earlier that covers the church age and we'll jump to the Antichrist in a study of the Antichrist. This is another one of those um, wonderful passages that tell us some details, interesting details about the Antichrist such as that um, Verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. Now, some have said that obviously when some evangelical Christians thought that maybe Bill Clinton was the um, was the Antichrist, they'd go to this verse and say, well, you know, it couldn't have been Clinton because it says the Antichrist won't have the desire of women. And then somebody said, well, it wouldn't apply to Hillary either. But anyway... And we'll have to look at that next time to see if that's really what it means to have the desire of women or if that means something else. And now i got everybody awake again with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, to realize that every detail is under your control, and even though there's, you have also decreed 
uh, human volition, we know that the, the direction of history is under your control. And no matter what men may desire to do and what evil men may attempt to do, we know that you are in control and we can relax and trust you. Father, we pray that you would uh, comfort us by the things that we have studied, that even in the midst of the instability of our own times, we might be able to relax and as believers uh, demonstrate a tremendous level of courage and confidence and that we might be a witness to those around us who are desperately in need of salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.